Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. (laughs) Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash getmore. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week, we're going to bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So, Kristen, where are you today? Where are you uh, calling I from? I am recording live from Alaska. <laughs> I was out late looking for the northern lights and then came back to my hotel to uh, to record the show. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, you know, we want to thank everybody who, even if you're not following from as remotely as Kristen is calling in today, for all of the great tweets and micro assignment completions that everyone's been doing, A++ to folks. So this week, very small, easy micro assignment. That's like our Facebook page. That's the pollsters. It's easy to find. And then share a link to the show. So you can find, we post links to the show on our Facebook uh, Facebook page and then share that link so people can not just like the Facebook page, which is fine and all well and good, but drive them to the show. So folks can learn about the show, folks in your network, we would greatly appreciate it. So Kristen, what are the big top lines this week? We'll start off by just reflecting a little bit on the uh, common refrain you hear in the polling world, which is that it's very hard to poll Alaska. Is that true? We will talk about that. Uh, Then Donald Trump obviously makes headlines again for more over-the-top and offensive statements again, uh, and is claiming that the polls show most Americans agree with him again. Uh, We'll take a look at whether or not the American public actually does agree with Donald Trump's latest idea about uh, Muslims uh, and the ability to enter the United States. Uh, And then perhaps related to the Donald Trump statement, Ted Cruz is surging in Iowa. We'll look at the latest coming out of the very first caucus state. Um, Last show, we talked about campaign finance. We'll look at some data on how this issue is viewed across parties. And last but not least, YouGov has released uh, a study about what happened in the UK election miss. Uh, We will take a look at what they say they think happened. Excellent. So as I mentioned, I am out here in Alaska and as I've been driving around, I was recalling that last year, um, the the race for the U.S. Senate between um, Sullivan and Begich uh, was one of those races that lots of people were talking about um, as one that they thought, well, are the polls really going to miss here? Um, the, uh, the good folks over at 538 had a whole article called Why the Senate Polling in Alaska is Making Us Sweat. Um, the article by Harry Enton and Nate Silver 
um, that that was the title. And they, they basically said, you know, if there's a race that keeps us awake at night, it's Alaska. The state is home to one of the most important Senate races in the country, but also has a history of quirky and often inaccurate polling. Um, and so, you know, people say, well, the polling there is scarce um, and we're worried that the polls aren't really that good. Um the New York Times put out a, an article where they tried to dig through this over at the upshot. Um, yes, Alaska is hard to pull. So is everywhere else. It's notorious for being hard to pull, writes the author Josh Katz. It's a common refrain, common enough you could be forgiven for not stopping to wonder why. Um, and he mentions in this article that it's in some ways not really clear why polling in Alaska would be so hard. I mean, it is I've heard it said before. It is a common refrain. Oh, gosh, it's so hard to poll Alaska. But I mean, in Alaska, the, the data actually shows that people here um, are very likely to have landline phones. Uh, I discovered while driving over a thousand miles around the state this past weekend that cell service is pretty good. A lot of places getting way outside of the city. Uh, internet penetration is apparently above average, even in remote communities where two thirds of Alaska's native population lives. Um, and so, you know, that he was basically trying to get to the bottom of why do people always say Alaska is hard to pull? And it came down to a pretty simple answer. Um, Matt Larkin, president of Dittman Research, he's an Anchorage based pollster. Uh, he said that he does think that Alaska posed special research challenges. Um, and in part because it's a very large state with a very wide variety of communities. Um, but that perhaps the biggest challenge is that you have low response rates. And so when you have a small population, he says, quote, you kind of run out of sample, frankly. Uh, and then the article they interviewed Sharon Shamard, uh, director of survey research at University of Alaska Anchorage. And she said this combined with the fact that Alaska is a place where I guess a lot of people move in and out of the state pretty frequently. Uh, so compiling a sample of sufficient size is a pretty long and expensive process. So there you have it, why people think polling in Alaska is difficult. Interesting to note, the Real Clear Politics polling average um, at the end for these for the polls in that Sullivan versus Begich race showed Sullivan was likely to win by plus 2.4 points, and the final result had Sullivan winning 2.2 points. So the polls were actually pretty good there at the end, um, if a little bit all over the place in that Alaska Senate race. So, so maybe, there you have it. Polling dispatch from Alaska. So maybe so maybe Alaska is easy to poll just like everywhere else. Um, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that you hear a lot as a campaign pollster. When you go talk to folks, they say, well, it's really it's different here. And it's a little bit harder if you don't really understand uh, what it's like here. Sometimes you hear this uh, comment when it comes to accents or really diverse populations. So maybe that's part of what uh, is happening when people this sort of conventional wisdom emerge in Alaska. You hear it a lot in Hawaii. You hear it a lot in places in the South or in Florida or in Texas where or California, where even though, you know, groups with large Latino populations, they'll have different kinds of accents and you'll want to make sure that your Latino interviewers have comparable accents or different types of accents for different Asian communities in Hawaii or California. So sometimes you'll hear the these will be methodological concerns that uh, we'll have to work around or that uh, uh, campaigns want to make sure they're aware of. So maybe there's a little bit a little bit of that going on. But I once did focus groups in Alaska many, many years ago. And this was before there was tighter security, which we're going to talk about flying security a bit, I guess, but before there was all that kind of stuff. And so I got a call at my hotel. They said, well, your flight is going to be, I was in a little island called Dutch Harbor. And they said, your flight is going to be delayed. And I said, how'd you 
know where to find me. And I said, well, we hear that you're the woman at the hotel. We didn't recognize your name. We just assumed you were the woman that everybody knows is staying at the one hotel on this island. So that's how people knew who I was. And that's how I knew that my flight was delayed before you had apps telling you that your flight was delayed and check-in was basically like, hey, Bob, are you taking this flight? No, I'm taking the next one. <laughs> so, so it's good. So that it's maybe easy to pull a little bit hard to fly. I don't know. We'll see. But I, a- I love this story because I watched a bunch of seasons of Deadliest Catch. And that's that show that's all about the folks that you were probably focus grouping out of Dutch Harbor. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I love this story and I'm really hoping that somebody that you focus grouped wound up being one of the people in that show. I know. I hope so too. I mean, especially, I mean, it would make sense that they were a show because they were a great focus group that I've been talking about for the last, you know, 20 years since I did those (laughs) groups. So it's no surprise to me that that colorful island is now the focus of, and its inhabitants now the focus of a show. So good. Uh, that was good, good thinking on somebody's part there. Um, so now more serious news. And that's what's going on in 2016. Last week, we had Ben Tolchin, uh, Sanders' campaign pollster. So we're going to table the Democratic side for this week because there's a lot roiling the Republican side, particularly Trump's recent uh, announcement yesterday. We're recording on Tuesday. So it was yesterday on Monday uh, that he wants a total and complete ban on the entry of Muslims into the United States. He's revised that slightly to say it would be temporary and it wouldn't include U.S. citizens who are currently abroad, like on vacation, they wouldn't be allowed to come back home, <laughs> according to his quote-unquote plan. It's creating a huge amount of news. Uh, it's, you know, people are saying it's likely unconstitutional. You have folks criticizing on both the left and the right. Um, it's really dominating the headlines. The polling piece here, I think, is important because he cites polling as the reason why he thinks this is important, that it needs to happen because polls show that a majority of Muslims living in the U.S. believe they should have the choice of being governed according to Sharia law. And he cites a poll done by um, uh, by uh, the Center for Security Policy. He also cites a Pew poll, but it's not clear which Pew poll he cites. Um, and it, it's caused, you know, the policy itself has caused a lot of controversy and his, and the polling that he cites and his citation of polling also causes some controversy. And we've talked a lot on this show. We've been following closely Trump's polling analysis <laughs> for better or worse. Um, every week he seems to have some kind of new way of looking at polls and focus groups that we, I guess, have a, you know, have a bone to pick with. And, uh, you know, I would say looking at this and, and you know, a, a few things. One, there's been a lot of criticism of the poll. The poll uh, is conducted by a uh, sponsored by a, a firm or sponsored by an organization that's been on um, terror uh, hate watch list, hate group list by the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, by the group's founder, supposedly uh, traffics in conspiracy theories that the poll was only 600 people, which, you know, I don't find that problematic that there's only 600 people uh, in the sample size that was done online. I think there are there are lots of good polls done online. Some have a bone to pick with the agree-disagree questions and how those are structured. I, I think the larger issue here is 
not, you know, whether there should be 600 interviews or 800 or something like that. The question is, you know, Trump's policy. I, I mean, I think he had a policy and was looking for a poll to support it. It's not like this poll, you know, is what prom- what provoked this policy. He had this idea and then looked for some sort of data to back it up. And, you know, it doesn't really matter. I, I think I say this as a pollster. What this one poll says, ultimately, it's whether or not this is good leadership and good strategy to have this policy. I mean, Kristen, what do you think? What are you seeing on the right? Yeah, there's there's always a big debate about to what extent polling should drive uh, policy, which that's a, a sort of a very, you know, 35,000 foot, like, in, interesting intellectual debate question, uh, which seems in some ways very far removed from, uh, you know, Donald Trump deciding he wants to ban Muslims from entering the country um, and then trying to hunt down a poll for this. But remember, I mean, this has part of been part of Donald Trump's message over the last few weeks. Um, you know, he's been sort of battling back and forth, I think, with Chris Christie over this question of after 9-11 in the United States, were Muslims celebrating taking down the Twin Towers. And Trump has been saying, yes, yes, yes. He's been, he and his supporters have been trying to dig up all sorts of news articles and video clips and everything that they find gets debunked. Like, no, no, no. That was clips of people in Palestine celebrating after 9-11. That was not people here in the U.S. Or, you know, op-eds, but the op-eds ran like two weeks ago, two weeks after 9-11 and were just sort of speculating. They had no hard evidence. Um, or so, he just cited people on Twitter in one interview. He said, well, people, you know, people tweeted me that this was true. Right. So, you know, he I think Trump is not he may say, oh, I'm, I'm collecting data and then I use that data to make my analysis. But uh, I, I think that it is the other way around. I think he decides I'm going to make headlines. I'm going to, you know, touch the raw nerve of America yet again. I'm going to make big headlines and big waves. And then I'm going to go try to find you. Know, I mean, he he'll criticize online polls of small samples if they oppose him, but that he loves them if it has a message that he wants. Um, so, you know, that it, it completely doesn't surprise me at all that Trump has figured out, okay, what's the issue that's really going to get Americans riled up right now? And, uh, you know, as, as we talked about in previous weeks, there we talked about, you know, the polling around the refugee issue, which is, I think, I think at least the policy of it is very different than what Trump is proposing here. Um, and the public opinion there, you know, you did have significant majorities of Americans saying, let's press pause on the refugee program, you know, let's, let's take a look. But most people in that situation, they didn't want a religious test. They just wanted to sort of press pause on the program entirely. And you had a majority saying they thought the idea of a religious test was pretty abhorrent. Um, a very, only a very slim number of people thought there should be a religious test, even when it came to refugees, much less like letting anybody into the country. So I suspect the real data would s- tell a story with sort of two prongs that Yes, I would suspect that there are a lot of Americans who are kind of uncomfortable with Islam at the moment, in part because of all of the news about radical Islam and what happened in San Bernardino. And we can say whether that's right or wrong or prejudiced or not. I suspect that the polling is would would suggest that there is sort of unrest, which is why Donald Trump's trying to tap into this. But at the same time, the polling also overwhelmingly suggests that Americans do not want to do the sorts of outrageous things that Donald Trump is talking about, that that is so far outside the mainstream. Um, I guess the question is, if you did a poll of Republicans and you asked them this question, do you support or oppose this new idea Donald Trump has? 
where would people stand? Because as we've talked about on the show before, if you ask questions with that formulation, you can get upwards of four of ten, out of 10 Republicans agreeing we should have single payer health care if they hear that Donald Trump likes it. Um, so to me, that's terrifying as a Republican, the danger that you can put the Trump name on things that are just absolutely insane madman delusions and that a, a chunk of the party will tell a pollster, eh, sure, that sounds fine. I know. And I, I worry that this means, you know, I mean, I think we need to divorce what Trump supports and what he says from the polling he uses to cite it, because, you know, it, it, I think it hurts. It hurts the industry if it's seen, a, you know, the polling is fueling Trump's, you know, quote unquote, platform right and that because it I, I really don't think you know because it's trump that's fueling his platform again he's not he is a platform look he has a platform that he's casting about looking for data to support it um or maybe his staff is you know maybe it's not even him i'm sure he's not sort of you know googling polls to try and look for this or, or demanding that his staff find a poll I, I bet he he has folks wanting to come up with some kind of facts behind it i mean i think if we also look i mean the other piece of this is not just what voters here want uh when it comes to an immigration policy, it's this notion that Muslims are, you know, universally sympathetic to ISIS or out to get us. That they all universally pose this threat, which is what's implicit in his policy announcement. And the polling here actually doesn't back that up. So the Pew, actually, the Pew poll we can find, as opposed to the one. Um, Trump sites shows overwhelmingly across a variety, Muslims in a variety of countries have um, uh, unfavorable views toward ISIS. This is a Pew poll that came out from this year. Um, there's no country that they tested where ISIS is net favorable at all. That's all, you know, overwhelmingly net unfavorable. Um, if, uh, you know, we talked about, I think last week or two weeks ago about the Sun poll in the UK that made a lot of news internationally that said a fifth of Muslims were sympathetic of ISIS, even though ISIS wasn't even in the question. Um, it, it received, you know, huge pushback. There were thousands of complaints. There was a lot of talk about it on Twitter. Even the people who did that poll, in fact, now say we disagree with how our poll has been interpreted. So, you know, even there, that poll, the, the pollsters who worked on it are, are saying the conclusions people are drawing from it are not true. So I think the polling uh, worldwide doesn't really bear out the conclusion that Trump is drawing from when he looks at the polls. You know, one other thing that I'll add is that there is something popular that we can do here at home. I mean, again, we've had a lot of shootings here recently. This has been part of what has been going on in the in the uh, dialogue on the Republican side. Trump said a week or so ago after San Bernardino saying, well, when things like this happen, my poll numbers rise. This is the kind of polling analysis that Trump does, right? After tragic mass shootings, my poll numbers rise. That's how he views uh, everything through the lens of his own poll numbers and through his own, his own himself, really. So, you know, something that actually is popular across party lines is changing the gun laws to ban those on the U.S. government's terrorist watch list from purchasing guns. 77% making that change, supports making that change. 76% of Republicans, 83% of Democrats. It's pretty bipartisan, overwhelming bipartisan support. Of course, that's not, you know, that didn't make it through in the Senate. You have Republicans and one Democrat uh, voting against making that change. So, um, so uh, you know, I would argue if you're going to look at polling when it comes to keeping us safe, that there are actually some polls suggesting that there are other things that we can do that are really not part of the dialogue. And I know I'm kind of getting into, you know, the blue zone here, but I do feel pretty strongly about where this national dialogue is going. 
I think that this, I, I believe that actually Donald Trump is one of the few Republican candidates who did come out in support of that. And and I only bring that up because to, to sort of raise that Trump often puts himself in a place where sort of ideological conservatives are not. So you have ideological conservatives who are saying constitutionally because of due process, you don't want to take someone's rights away without due process. So even though we may know that our base is kind of uncomfortable, you know, wants to fight terrorism. And, you know, we may know that that's where our voters are at. But from a like a principle ideological perspective, we take position A, um, whereas Trump, like Trump doesn't have principles. He's just sort of pu- pushes on emotion. And so for him, seeing those poll numbers, he can go, yeah, sure, let's do it. I, I, I'm not I, I'm not getting in debate over the policy. I'm just saying, like, this is one of those examples where, you know, Republicans are split because you have so many Republicans who are very, very pro Second Amendment um, at the point where they say that to me trumps, no pun intended, that to me trumps sort of the the the, the polling around the issue. Um, but for Trump, principles do not trump the polling around any issue. Um, so and and I on my flight out here to Alaska, I was actually reading Art of the Deal because I'm just fascinated at trying to understand how Trump's mind works. Um, so this book came out in the late 80s. And there were t- there were two quotes that I thought, like, they jumped out at me. And this is even before the whole this the whole past, you know, couple of days has gone down. The first is he's talking about Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. And he's talking he like kind of praises Jimmy Carter. He says, like, oh, you know, he had a good ability, you know, he wasn't necessarily qualified for the job, but, you know, he he had a good ability to, to you know, he had the nerve and the guts and, and that helped him become president. And then he says, Ronald Reagan, he's so smooth and effective a performer that he completely won over the American people. Only now, nearly seven years later, are people beginning to question whether there's anything beneath that smile. Like Donald Trump insults Ronald Reagan in his book, which when you think about the Republican base, like insulting Ronald Reagan is like another like insulting Ronald Reagan is like you've committed an act of heresy like this is crazy right. <laughs> um and yet he's sort of like hmm this man became president and was able to fool Americans into thinking that he was smart for long enough like you can see the wheels of Trump's brain turning and then last but not least he says the final key to the way i promote things is bravado i always play to people's fantasies people may not always think big themselves but they can still get very excited by those who do that's why a little hyperbole never hurts people want to believe in something that is the biggest and greatest and the most spectacular i call it truthful hyperbole it's an innocent form of exaggeration and it's a very effective form of promotion ladies and gentlemen there you have it in like 60 words donald trump's campaign strategy yeah, uh, he calls it truthful hyperbole. I think we've gone well beyond the bounds to where that's um, an appropriate description of what he does. But it is funny that as far back as 1987, he's like the way I sell things is realizing that people don't dream big. So I'll dream big for them and I'll make big, brash, crazy statements and tell people things that they didn't even know they wanted to hear. Yeah, I mean, that's fine if you're talking about the buffet at your golf course you know, country club, but it's, it's really a different matter altogether if you're talking about 
uh, a policy that's affecting millions of people and running for president. Obviously, I don't need to convince you of that, but that's, you know, that, that's what we're dealing with here. I, I believe yeah. that people like that. A question is what happens, what happens next to Republicans? Does the Republican establishment somehow get involved and what does that look like? Do voters change their mind? That's clearly not happening. The media seem, you know, the media hasn't given him any sort of pass. They'd certainly give him a lot of coverage, but they're not giving him a pass on these details. So, um, so it, this is obviously still evolving as it's been now for months. And the one conjecture as to why this now happened yesterday, why did Trump do this, um, is from a poll that came out by Monmouth in Iowa showing Cruz on top. So this is the first time we've seen Cruz winning or, you know, certainly since Trump's surge, um, where Cruz is at 24, Trump is at 19, Rubio at 17, Carson now really dropping from where he was before in Iowa. He's been up in Iowa before. Now he's at 13 and then Bush at six in single digits. So this is a real change from how things have been going, uh, not only in this Monmouth poll, but in polling overall. Um, so that's seen by some as part of the reason to just get Cruz off the front page by, uh, you know, coming up with something that people will can't stop, you know, can't help themselves but talk about. Um, and you can see in their favorables, some interesting things that really reflect what's going on in the race. Ben Carson's favorables dropping considerably. He was at 84% favorable. Now it's 67% favorable. 19 unfavors, unfavors have gone up, you know, more than doubled. Cruz's favorables have gone up from 59 to 67. Rubio's faves gone up just a hair. Trump's favorables stayed the same. So it's not that anything's really happening to Trump. It's that there is movement with everybody else that, you know, Carson's decline means that Cruz and Rubio improve. And Bush, I mean, Bush's numbers are really troubling. I mean, he's now net, un, you know, clearly net unfavorable in Iowa, 38 fave, 45 unfave. This is with Republicans in Iowa, um, Republican caucus goers. There's an article in Politico. I think the headline maybe is a little, you know, truthful hyper, hyperbolic there. Truthful hyperbole. It says that Bush's team is trying to convince people that the polls are wrong. If you look at the story, it doesn't really say the polls are wrong, just that they're not, you know, that there's still, you know, there's still time for Bush to move. It's not that the polls are wrong and that he's not at 6% or 5% or 3%. It's that he will eventually be at the top, um, which I think is a little bit different than saying he's not really at 6. He's really at 30. It's just the polls don't reflect that. That's saying the polls are wrong. But anyway, Kristen, what do you think of looking at some of this? Yeah, in that in that Politico story, just briefly, um, the one of the quotes is from a friend of mine, Slater Bayless, uh, who he's, his quote is basically, you know, given the poll numbers currently, you would think there would be massive defections from the Bush campaign, um, that normally if a candidate, you know, is at the front and then all of a sudden they get down to like 3%, that all of a sudden people start bailing, they start endorsing other candidates. And that really hasn't, you know, he notes in here that that really hasn't happened, that even though Jeb's polling has been really lackluster, that all of his supporters are still hanging on. And, and Slater's sort of theory, what he says in this quote is, um, they like him because he's serious and eventually they think serious will sell. Um, so I, th- I think that's an interesting analysis of the race and why people who are, see Jeb's numbers so poorly, um, you know, they, they still think there's hope for him. For me, if I was Jeb, my concern would not be that I'm at six in Iowa. It's that I'm as low as I am in New Hampshire, but we can right. talk about New Hampshire in a different week. Um, you know, Iowa was never going to be Jeb Bush's main event. 
Um, and frankly, I mean, Iowa has just has not had a track record of picking Republican nominees in the last two contests. I think even uh, more. It just it, it, it doesn't have a very good track record. You're right. New Hampshire is really, you know, the place where New Hampshire's more where it is now. This is a very different cycle. And maybe the party's gut is more uh, it's maybe we're more new Iowa than New Hampshire this go around. Who knows? Um but in, in this poll, it's becoming increasingly clear to me that if there's a quote unquote establishment candidate who's going to win Iowa, it's Ted Cruz. And yes, I am using the phrase establishment <laughs> candidate to describe Ted Cruz, if only because like he is sort of someone that I can see the, you know, Republican establishment going like, OK, well, let's support him. Let's let's do this thing. Whereas if it's Carson, I think there's a there would be a big like, oh, my God, we need to do something about this. And obviously, Trump, uh, I think, would cause a meltdown within the party. So. Uh, Ted Cruz now sits atop the polls in Iowa. This is the uh, the Monmouth poll. He's at 24. Um, then if you also take a look, I think the CNN ORC poll came out yesterday. Um, and they show in Iowa Trump um, ahead. They show Trump at 33%, Cruz at 20%, Carson at 16%. But I mean, bear in mind, you add all of that together, that's 69%. Like the, the Trump, Cruz, Carson... If you count Cruz as a protest vote, if you count Carson as a protest vote, if you certainly count Trump as a protest vote, right. that's 69 percent of caucus goers in Iowa saying they are a protest vote. Um, now, the one thing I want to throw in there is within the Monmouth survey, they also asked people, um, you know, how likely are you or unlikely are you to vote? And that Trump supporters overwhelmingly or that that when you look at people who say they're less likely to vote, Trump surges among those folks among the people that the monmouth survey thinks or thought things are more likely to vote um trump does much less well so i would you know applying that over here in iowa that's always still the question so you can have donald trump at 19 percent in a poll do those people actually go out in the freezing cold on february 1st and go to a caucus and fight for trump or are they people who are amused by him but not really you know, and, and it can be hard to gauge that because, of course, Trump supporters on the Internet are among my least favorite people <laughs> to encounter in the wilds of Twitter. Um, they certainly don't seem like the kind of people who are just going to say, eh, whatever, and stay home in February. Should Trump still be in the race? Um, I mean, I almost wonder if Trump's game at this point is that he really does want to get out, that like this isn't really fun anymore, that it's like the dog that caught the car. That if he wins Iowa, would he just like be like, all right, I won Iowa or maybe he wins Iowa and New Hampshire because he's, of course, ahead in, in both of those states in some polls. He wins Iowa, he wins New Hampshire, and then he's out. And then he's like, I'm done with this. Because, of course, then after that are states where perhaps he does less well or, you know, then you get to a state like Florida where, of course, he is ahead in the polls. But it would surprise me if somebody named Rubio or Bush does not ultimately win Florida. Um but yeah, this is, I, I think for me, the craziest finding in all of this is if, you know, I hang out with my Beltway Insider crew, who the idea of Donald Trump is like the apocalypse for them. And in this, uh, in this Monmouth poll, um, how would you feel if Donald Trump became the Republican nominee? Uh, you have 61% of the folks surveyed saying they would be enthusiastic or at least satisfied right. if Trump nominee. Right. You have 20 percent who say they'd be dissatisfied and you only have 17 percent of people who would be upset. So these people like me who are in kind of, you know, 
well, I've been in freak out mode for the last few months, but, um, you know, <laughs> people who are in freak out mode, we are the minority of the party. And for every one of us in Iowa, there's someone else who is enthusiastic about the idea of Trump as nominee. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's it's really important to remember, I mean, to remember a couple different pieces here in terms of turnout operationally. How does a Trump victory happen? So on the one hand, you're right. I mean, you have a majority of Republicans in Iowa saying, you know, I'm OK with it, even if that's not necessarily who I'm voting for as my top tier. I'm OK with it. And that's very much different from the conventional wisdom here in D.C., which is. If Trump wins, Republicans are going to be voting for any Democrat because he's just so unpalatable. And that may not that may or may not be true. Um, so that's that's one thing. You also still at the same time have a lot of people who haven't made up their mind. I mean, you have about half who say they're still trying to decide about a quarter. This is an Iowa CNN poll saying they're leaning towards someone as opposed to being definitely decided. That's still about a quarter. And while that number is growing, it's still not. It's still just a quarter. So there is still time for movement and moving around and changing, especially with a race that is as volatile as this one is, or rollicking um, as this one is. And then, you know, the last piece in terms of what happens on Election Day or Caucus Day is Trump's operation. Trump doesn't have the kind of field operation, is my understanding, that all these other campaigns do because they know that that's, that's the key. You, know, you make your political calls, you get local advocates on the ground, you, you know, make sure you're meeting informed voters and you're meeting, you know, community leaders and you're doing coffees and all that kind of stuff, which Trump is not doing, his campaign is not really doing. I mean, that's my, that's my, take from perspective, obviously, from here in D.C., but that will make a huge difference where it's easier to be called in a poll and say how you're going to vote than it is to actually vote for somebody or vote against somebody whose hand you shook or who came to your friend's or neighbor's living room. So we'll see how that plays a role. It's obviously hugely, hugely important in Iowa and New Hampshire where, as we've said on the show before, people expect to meet these candidates. Um, the last thing I'll note is that you know, here in D.C. and you'll listen to folks on the news and other, you know, campaign watchers are just looking for reasons to to discount Trump's surge it, it continually. That continues to be true. And we all are proved wrong again and again every week. I mean, there was a CNN national poll that showed Trump at 36. That was a new high for him. And everyone went bonkers over that. And then people said, well, there were some questions about immigration, not specific to any candidate, but just the policy of immigration before you got to the vote. And that's why Trump did better. That's why it's a new high form, because people were primed to think about immigration where Trump is strong or is seen as strong among Republicans. And that may be true. You certainly want to have your question with the clean read up at the top rather than have a bunch of things before it that may change that answer in ways you you can't measure, you don't know. Um, that doesn't really change the fact that Trump is ahead. I mean, Cruz may be ahead in a mammoth poll, but still Trump is still on top. I mean, it doesn't really matter what he says, uh, what's going on in the political dialogue. He continues to be at, at top. It's just a question of, you know, operationally, what happens next? Is there some kind of movement that is effective to get him to knock him off his perch? Or does that happen naturally? Or... Does it not happen? Does he, you know, continue to, to cruise on to to victory? You know, that that's still, you know, that's still becoming a possibility. Well, the debate is always, you know, are you going to win Iowa on the air or are you going to win it on the ground? Are you going to win Iowa because you have an operation that's going to get all these folks to the caucuses? Or are you going to win Iowa because you can saturate the airwaves, which is sort of what the Bush campaign strategy is at this point. And Donald Trump has really created this whole third path, which is neither spending a bunch of money on ads nor building a ground game. It's just earned media. Can I just get enough earned media 
that I can overcome all this. Um, fascinating final tidbit to pull out of this CNN poll. So in addition to the ballot where they show Trump doing very well, Cruz doing very well, and Rubio sort of having a big surge as well as Carson falling off, they show that um, among those who have sort of lost steam, Fiorina, um, the Fiorina bubble, I think, has officially burst. Um, we have both the Monmouth poll and the CNN poll showing her falling um, way back into the pack. Uh, they, they, she, she did not sustain her initial position. Um, Huckabee and Paul are also people who previously had been five and seven percent now down in the very low single digits. Um, but you still have 48 percent of people saying that they are still trying to decide. These are Iowa Republicans. And so bear in mind, Iowa Republicans are getting more attention than Republicans almost anywhere else. If half of them still are trying to decide, I mean, you have tons of people across the country who are still trying to decide. So this race, as always, remains very much so in flux. It is December. It is almost the holidays. So it is still shocking that Trump is leading in the polls, but we still have a ways to go. And we still have a lot of people who haven't decided. Um, and then final note, they also asked, which candidate do you think is best on each of these different issues, foreign policy, social issues, et cetera? Um, Trump is chosen as the best candidate on foreign policy. Carson is still in the lead on social issues such as abortion and same-sex marriage. Um, best represents the values of Republicans yourself. Trump is still slightly in the lead on that one at 25%. But this is the kicker. This is the one that just grabbed me. Which candidate do you think has the best chance of winning the general election next November? Donald Trump, 42%. I 40% of Iowa Republicans think that he has the best chance of winning the general. That's more than choose him on the ballot. There are people that pick someone else on the ballot, but then go, you know, I think Trump would probably be the best to take on Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. Like that's, that's just, I mean, well, that runs counter to every piece of general election polling data we have talked about on this show. So maybe we need to get more Iowa Republicans listening to the show, Margie, so they can sort of have a better sense of, of what that really looks like. I know, I know, right? I mean, it, you know, another thing, and we can't really dig into this today, I guess, but I am interested in having this conversation. I mean, I've heard a lot. I mean, we talked a little bit about last week who, which candidate would be worse for the Republican Party, Cruz or Trump. And I've heard some people on both sides say, well, if Trump wins, nothing happens in terms of House and down ballot races or Senate races. But if Cruz wins, that could really hurt down ballot and uh, down ballot races. And you know, that's now becoming a higher level of analysis than these questions can really or should ask voters to to prepare and have. But that's something that we'll continue to see part of the dialogue, too. Right. I mean, there's a chance of winning the general election is there's also like hurting the party in some way. And what does that mean? What does that look like? So one other, you know, we have two more things to wrap up. Two more stories, uh, reports that I think are, are pretty interesting. One that came from, uh, Pew, and that's on the issue of campaign finance reform. And we talked about this with Ben, uh, last week. Uh, he was making the case that there are a lot of voters who really, uh, care about this. And, and Kristen made the point, which is something we've seen and wondered about is, is it a vote driver? People may be in favor of campaign finance reform. Will it change how they actually vote? Is this the year that it happens? And, Pew tries to shed a little bit of light of it on it. I still don't know if they get to the bottom of the question of does it actually 
drive votes one way or the other. But you do see this growing worry about money's influence on politics. Um, so they asked money has, does money have greater influence on politics today than, than before? And it's exactly the same response. 76% of Republicans say yes. 76% of Democrats say yes. Uh, there's another question, comparable question. High cost of presidential campaigns discourages good candidates. Slightly more, just barely more Democrats say yes, 68%, 62% of Republicans say yes. I mean, it's not really a big difference. Again, it's one of those questions that has incredible bipartisan support, it's, even though it's something that's really much more a part of the dialogue on the, Dem- in the Democratic contest than on the Republican contest. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't Republicans worried about it. So does this, you know, are we going to see these issues become part of the dialogue part of the general. I mean, Trump has actually talked about this in a variety of ways that are somehow contradictory. Um, but it is something that I think candidates may be ignoring at their peril. Again, I'm not, you know, it, I think we may see this become an increasing vote driver, although probably not at this two thirds, three fourths percent that we're seeing in these Pew numbers. What do you think, Kristen? Yeah, this is one of those questions where, you know, when when we talked about it on the interview last week, it was, you know, you can get 90 percent of people to agree with something. But if only two percent of them actually vote on it, does it really matter? And, you know, are there really people that are saying, gosh, I'm less likely to vote for a candidate because they have a super PAC? Or is that something that's easy to say to a pollster but doesn't really factor in when you're at the ballot box? Um, But I think it is really fascinating that you do have this very similar, you know, 76 percent and 76 percent. Republicans and Democrats on the question of money has a greater influence on politics today, um, that you have very comparable numbers on the high cost of presidential campaigns discourages good candidates. I think and and but I I also think that these two questions don't necessarily tell you what the policy prescriptions should therefore follow. And that's where I think you'd see the a bigger, a much bigger divergence. If you asked a question about like, say, should we amend the constitution to create a separate class of political speech that can be regulators. I mean, I wonder how different the policy, like you, you can get a lot of people to agree across the aisle on the nature of a problem, but it's much harder to get people to agree across the aisle on what the solution should be. Although I guess increasingly we keep talking about different poll numbers on the show where even people on other sides of the aisle usually can't even agree on the problem. So this, this may actually represent a unique issue in that regard. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. I mean, I, I expect that there'll be more polling on this as time wears on. But, you know, I I, I worry. I worry that, you know, there. I guess there isn't a lot of money in the in the campaign finance reform, right? I mean, there's no, you know, the big money is against campaign finance reform. So there's, it's tough to find a, a clear, you know, a clear funder, someone who's really going to push out and make a real campaign and show of it for uh, campaign finance reform, really put money behind it in a way that it, it reaches everybody, right? Because that would go against sort of the whole, the whole principle of the thing. Um, and then the last thing that I think we'll note is an uh, update on what's going on from the UK. Now, folks may remember that the polling in the UK election 
was considered to be off. It really showed it was going to be a much closer race than turned out to be with a clear conservative win for Cameron and the conservatives. And we had Anthony Wells on from YouGov and said, you know, we don't really know yet what happened. We're investigating it. It could be a variety of things. Um, and they have a preliminary report out. So we're going to link to it in the show notes. It just came out yesterday. We haven't re- read the whole report. I did read uh, some of the top lines from it. And uh, it's it's very, but it is very accessible. So folks should take a look at it and 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 see for themselves, and also what they're going to do next. And you know, their main things that they they investigated a couple things. One is the sample selection, the sample composition. Is there a sample include the right people? Two, this question of shy Tories that people were reluctant to admit that they were voting for conservatives. And then the third being a late surge. Did a surge happen uh, at the end that they just missed? And they are pointing toward the first, that it's their sample composition, that the folks in their panel are um, – that the young people that they had in the panel were more politically engaged, which made them – disproportionately labor um, and that the older folks that and they didn't have quite enough older folks, particularly folks over 70, over 75. And those folks were going to be disproportionately conservatives. They didn't have quite enough of those folks. And then the last piece is that they, you know, use the, the folks who had entered their panel earlier on in the year as opposed to adding more folks as time wore on. So that also led to having more politically engaged people, um, which may have made it seem a little bit more labor than ultimately the, the electorate was. So those are some, uh, some of their first thoughts in terms of what accounted for their error in their poll. But there are other outlets too that missed it. So we're going to, I think, try and get Anthony. I don't know if Anthony listens, but we're going to try, we're going to tag him and we're going to tell him that we want him to come back on the show and explain the report a little bit more detail. And maybe we should have, again, our, are putting it out in the universe to have uh, John Cohen from SurveyMonkey because I think they called it correctly in the UK. So I think we want to continue to to do a debrief to kind of figure out what happened there. Well, Margie, what are the top lines this or what are the key findings this week? <laughs> so, so the key findings this week are, okay, there are some things that polls shouldn't help us do, and that's develop likely unconstitutional po- policies. But if we're going to look at polling among Muslims, the results are not even close to being as clear cut as Trump believes. And meanwhile, there are some things that are, in fact, popular, preventing terrorists from getting guns, for example, or people on the terrorist watch list and limiting campaign spending. And all this means that the Republican race is particularly roiling and volatile this week. That we can absolutely tell from the polling. You can find us on Twitter at at the pollsters. You can find Margie at at Margie O'Mero and I'm at K. Soltis Anderson. Find us on Facebook where you can see links to the polls we find throughout the week that we think our readers and listeners will think are very interesting. And don't forget, that's your micro assignment. Head over to our Facebook page. Give us a like and share this week's episode with your friends. Um, you can also find us at thepolsters.com and subscribe to us on any podcatcher, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, um, whichever one of your choice. Thanks. Bye. 